Welcome to Fifth Wall's Fly on the Wall podcast, where we explore the shifts occurring in real estate, technology, and society that are driving our cities towards a more equitable, green, and tech-enabled future. I'm your host, Brendan Wallace. In today's episode, I catch up with Chris Marquis, a professor at Cornell's SC Johnson College of Business. Chris shares his thoughts on the B Corporation movement and how it has evolved since he began his work on stakeholder capitalism in 2007. We delve into sustainability, covering the direct correlation and trade-off between economic growth and pollution. Enjoy the episode. So Chris, thank you so much for joining. Looks like you're joining from, I think I recognize the New York skyline <laughs> in the background, is that, that right? Yeah, that that is right. Yeah, a little bit more urban than your sort of beautiful tree-lined environment. It seems we've taken different approaches to navigating the the COVID awkwardness. Um, but uh, can you just start maybe by um, giving people a bit of background on yourself, um, what you cover academically, and what your focus has been at Cornell? Sure. Yeah. So so yeah, Professor Cornell. Uh, and I research and, and teach on two, two broad topics, I guess. So one is, you know, how business can be more sustainable and resilient. Uh, so things like covering social businesses like B Corps, environmental sustainability initiatives. Uh, I teach a class uh, on social entrepreneurship. Uh, so that's one of my main teaching um, uh, responsibilities. Another related set of research actually looks at sustainability social responsibility in China, and also entrepreneurship. Uh, and then the other set of responsibilities teaching-wise I have, I teach a class on doing, doing business in China. And also every year I lead a group of students uh, to China and we visit leading companies there. And that's part of a class as well. Wow, that's really interesting. And um, you have a new book that's coming out, uh, Better Business. Um, I'd be curious to learn more about the book and, and its topic, but just- sure. Uh, from an, a motivation standpoint, like what prompted you to, to write that? Yeah, so I've, I've been researching this topic of, of like businesses impacting society for now probably about 15 years. And I think that, uh, so the focal um, I, sort of case of the book is the B Corp uh, movement, which I can explain a little bit in a second. But uh, so as I've, as I've been studying this for a long time, I've really come to the conclusion, I think this is one of the most important sort of business trends of our time. Uh, you know, you and, and your, your viewers are probably familiar with, um, you know, the Business Roundtable has come out saying that companies should be more stakeholder focused. You know, the World Economic Forum focused on stakeholder capitalism, even, you know, big investors like Larry Fink are saying, from BlackRock are saying, you know, businesses should have a purpose. Uh, and, and these things are easier said than done. Uh, and what, what, what I find a lot about the B Corp, um, tools and processes and model really compelling is it somewhat provides a playbook for how for companies to become more stakeholder driven to focus more on their uh, you know employees communities environment suppliers uh, etc so you know I think there's been this ground swell of support from these leading actors outside the movement saying we should be more stakeholder oriented and I think that the you know the B Corp movement is really important because it sort of says how you can do that and also, you know, put some teeth in it. It's not just like you're saying it, but you're actually doing it. 
Yeah, and, and from our perspective as a firm that recently became a B Corp, that that was the motivation on our side, right? It was yeah. it was we cared about our stakeholders, we cared about conforming to criteria, but we didn't want to have to invent right. all those criteria. We didn't want to have to invent the audit. We wanted some way of doing right. it and almost inheriting a playbook from other firms. Um, and I think that's that's really powerful, right? Because a lot of these companies that become B Corps are, are busy. They're doing lots of things. But maybe right. before we even go down the path of B Corps, can you just frame for yeah. people what a, a B Corp is? And actually, I noticed oh, in sure. your preface, um, I'm going to quote, it says, uh, the B Corp movement is the most important social movement you've never heard of. <laughs> just, just explain that to people. Why have they sure, never yeah, yeah. Well, for, Why is it so important? Sure. Well, yeah. Well, first of all, sort of what a B Corp is, I mean, sort of you sort of alluded to it in, in why, you know, Fifth Wall is a B Corp. Uh, but, you know, it's a company that's that's certified whose like social environmental performance has been certified by a nonprofit uh, B Lab. And, you know, there's many certifications, people I'm sure are more familiar, maybe with fair trade, organic, you know, in the real estate industry, lead certified buildings. But the B Corp certification is really the only certification that certifies a whole company. And, you know, in addition to Fifth Wall, you know, like companies like Patagonia, Seventh Generation, Ben and Jerry's, like really famous socially focused companies. But then, you know, Hoops, Hootsuite, Kickstarter, Allbirds, uh, Bombas, many, you know, sort of really the most sort of sort of cool and innovative companies nowadays to even like Danone, a very traditional uh, you know, sort of company from France has 20 B Corp certifi certified. Uh, King Arthur Flower is, um, you know, from a company from 1790, also certified employee owned. So, so it's a movement of companies, you know, committing and going through processes to become more socially and environmentally sustainable. So why to your sort of question, sort of, is it so important, uh, despite the fact that people haven't heard about it, is that I think that in the last 50 years in the US, the dominant ideology of companies is around delivering profits to shareholders. So this idea of shareholder primacy and you know, companies that are public, you know, they're on this sort of hamster wheel of delivering quarterly profits, um, you know, alignment of CEOs through stock options and other mechanisms with the share price, you know, really you know, very narrowly focuses the companies on, on shareholders. Uh, and I think what the B Corp uh, movement says is that, you know, we should be much more about stakeholders. Uh, and I think that, 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 you know, the shareholder capitalism that we have um, sort of gone down the path of for 50 years is, you know, really the root cause of many of the systematic problems we have in our country, like, you know, inequality and environmental uh, sort of uh, destruction. I think that, why, you know, the people don't realize that because, the, you know, they feel that, that's sort of the natural way capital, capitalism is, but actually it's only been that way for the last 50 years. Before then, you know, it was, much, you know, employees had generous pensions. Companies were, you know, really active in their communities. And so I think, you know, the, the, the speed court movement, one reason why it's the sort of important social movement is that it's uh, sort of reorients the thinking about companies in a way that people are not necessarily used to. Uh, the second thing is that, for this change to really take place, to, to shift to more stakeholder capitalism, it has to be also something consumers want. And I think there's a lot of um, sort of indication and evidence and particularly like 
you know, millennials and Gen Z wanting much more socially responsible businesses. Uh, but I think that, you know, this is, you know, getting awareness of B corporations, companies that are authentically committed to, you know, purpose beyond shareholders uh, is, you know, needs to get more attention. And so, you know, it's great that I'm, you know, here today talking to you about it. And it's great that Fifth Wall is a B Corp also. Yeah, I'm curious just to dig in on some of the things you mentioned. So you use this word stakeholder. And I think when people conceptualize what a stakeholder is, the, the idea of a stock owner is kind of the most intuitive. Right. And maybe that's a function of how we've defined businesses to date. Um, what are some of the, the kind of big frameworks to view your stakeholders as, as a business that, that, that might not be obvious to people? Like how would you define the different cohorts of stakeholders for a business? Sure, so, you know, um, you know, in some ways you can think about, you know, stakeholders that are sort of more inside the company and those that are sort of in some ways outside the company. So, you know, if you think about inside the company, the most important stakeholder is the employees. Um, um, suppliers also are, you know, sort of hybrid, you know, inside, outside the company, you know, very involved, obviously, in producing the company's products. Uh, outside the company, you have consumers, uh, the governments, and, and the communities that the, the companies are in, and then investors. And the investors are the ones, sort of the, the stockholders, that obviously have taken such a primary role. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of evidence that, you know, companies are much more sustainable long term, if they actually put a lot of effort in focusing on the broader set of stakeholders, uh, much more resilient. Uh, you know, if a company is just focusing on its shareholders, you know, things like, you know, probably higher employee turnover, because they're not treating the, the employees well, you know, maybe there's ends up being, you know, issues with, you know, uh, product quality and other um, things with consumers, uh, poor supplier relations. So really, it's an ecosystem around the company that for long term sustainability, uh, companies need to be focusing on the whole, not just the one number of uh, earnings per share, basically. And what's, what's interesting is when you think about, you know, where we find ourselves now in the midst of this pandemic and kind of the economic and social and cultural fallout from it is that I think real estate owners, to a greater extent than they ever have before, have had to internalize how many stakeholders they do in fact have. Um, meaning, you know, if someone is occupying your building or living in your building and how they interact with other tenants and how that relates to government right. mandates around, you know, stay-at-home orders, the, the, the number of constituents that a, a real estate owner touches, the, the stakeholders to them is so broad it's almost thrust that responsibility, I think, on real estate owners in a way that they never had to think of before. They never had to self-conceptualize yeah. that way. It's interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I think that the real estate industry, for many reasons, is one of the most complex industries that we have. Uh, and, you know, your point illustrates, you know, I gave you sort of these big buckets of stakeholders but every company and industry has its own sort of unique set of stakeholders. And so I can see in the real estate industry that all of the, you know, from, yeah, sort of from tenants to the tenants, clients to, you know, whomever, you know, are very important stakeholders that some plan, particularly in the situation, you know, in the past number of months that needs to be dealt with in some way. And in and, and the same time, in, in that same vein, you also have, you know, tenants that are now recognizing that my health and public health is, 
is kind of in many ways in the hands of landlords and the decisions they're making and the right. economic trade-offs and the public health trade-offs that they must consider in making those decisions. But another thing you mentioned that I, I thought was really interesting was, I think you talked about how it's a, it's a younger movement, right? This is kind of millennial driven. And we've seen right. that, I'd say in the real estate world, we see it that for a lot of companies that have a lot of younger millennial employees, the concept of being sustainable, right? Or being a socially conscious organization is non-negotiable, it's table stakes. Um, right. And because their companies are like that, when they're leasing space from a landlord, their requirements of that landlord are much higher than tenants right. five, 10 years ago. How have you seen that play out? Like how much is this a, a youth movement? Um, and do you think it will always kind of have that that pressure, that impetus from youth? Yeah, I think definitely. I mean, the, the youth, you know, particularly, you know, the millennials, Gen Z, it's been, have been tremendous powers behind this movement. And I think that, you know, if you look at sort of the research, and I've learned this myself through my students, you know, been teaching on this, yeah, for 10 or 15 years before being at Cornell, I was at, at Harvard, Harvard Business School and Kennedy School for over uh, 10 years. And really, it was my students' enthusiasm that drew me into the into this topic. Uh, and you know, similar to like you were saying in the real estate industry, you know, individuals when they want to work for a company, when they look for products, uh, they want something that aligns with their purpose uh, and their their idea and vision as as a person. And so, you know, there is this interest in in being consistent in 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 some way. And so, I think that's obviously you know, tremendously important in supporting these companies uh, and the people that go to work for them. I also think another interesting uh, thing is that if you look at surveys, I haven't had sort of experience with this myself, but there's indications that the youth uh, are much less enthusiastic about capitalism as a system in general uh, and feel that, you know, the economic system needs to be substantially reformed to, you know, take care of, of a wider variety of people. And I think that plays into it because these businesses are much more responsive. And then finally, to the uh, sort of long-term trend of this, you know, there's been some discussion that sort of as, you know, the baby boomers pass their wealth on to this younger generation, it's a huge amount. I mean, 30, uh, $40 trillion. And so, you know, I do think that this demographic that, you know, is really you know, living their values in, um, you know, through, through their purchases, through, through the, the work that they do, you know, will have a lot of power moving forward. And, and you've covered this movement, right, since, since 2007. And so I imagine it's, right. it's changed a lot since then. What have been some of the themes and the trends around that change that, that are interesting? Yeah, so I think... Um, one of the one of the things that is really and it connects to the to the youth is the the passion of the people that are involved in this. I mean, these are people that you know want to change the world. They want to do it collaboratively. You know, I think that in in the U.S. culture, the idea of like an entrepreneur is like a solo hero, like Steve Jobs or Elon Musk. But really, these um, companies and individuals they want to work together. A partner to really make the world better, uh, you know, and so, so within this B Corp community, there's all these interesting partnerships. I mean, uh, 
you know, the sort of the funniest ones are, are that, I, that I find are between Ben and Jerry's, uh, the ice cream maker and New Belgium uh, Brewing, the beer maker they make. They have uh, teamed up to make beer flavored ice cream and some some sort of ice cream flavored beer, which is sort of a, you know, I mean, I think they did it because they thought, you know, they liked each other so much and it was sort of interesting combination, but there's tons of collaboration in this um, ecosystem, which I think makes everyone better and the impact even stronger. I think uh, sort of the second thing that has really impressed me over time is how the movement has shifted from just being about B corporations to being about all corporations. So, you know, the, so I published some uh, HBS case studies about B Lab and B corporations. And in 2010, the first uh, HBS case study I published, the title of it, I think, was B Lab colon, you know, creating a new sector of the economy. So it was about these B corporations, and they were not regular businesses, they were not nonprofits. They were a new sector where it was sort of this hybrid in the middle. Uh, but, you know, really in the last, you know, half a decade, maybe, you know, seven, eight years, the change strategy has shifted to, you know, actually it's not about a separate segment of the economy. It's actually about the whole economy and how can we create the tools, processes to make, so all companies can be more like B Corps uh, and, and all companies can be more socially responsible and we can be a more stakeholder driven um, economy. That's interesting. Like thinking about the, the ethos of what being a B Corp means kind of colliding with traditional business um, and just yeah. thrusting responsibility on traditional businesses that are non B Corps um, because right. of the success um, that has been seen with B Corps. I'm curious, how is the, just the, the composition of companies that, that ultimately become B Corps? Has that changed? Have you seen just dynamics that are interesting there? Or are there yeah. particular kinds of companies that are more likely to become a B Corp and I guess the related question is when? When is when are they becoming B Corps? Is it earlier yeah. in their maturation? So I think that early on uh, it was smaller companies, companies you know that you could you you know you would say okay that's a B Corp like you know Patagonia with this sort of long-standing environment commitment you know Ben and Jerry's deep social activism. Uh, uh, so these companies that were really sort of well-known, the larger ones, and then the smaller companies that were the, you know, the, the entrepreneurs were really sort of focused on, on social entrepreneurship. The thing that I, where I think the scale of this is really uh, going to grow exponentially is the extent to which large companies have jumped on board in the past number of years. Uh, so for instance, one, uh, I just saw today on Forbes published an article about Athleta, you know, the, the sort of yoga apparel brand that's a subsidiary of Gap. It's a, it's a B corporation uh, and, you know, has been certified for, for a couple of years now, a large company. Uh, Danone, the $30 billion French multinational, has committed to being the first sort of global multinational uh, B Corp. They've certified over um, uh, uh, 20 of their subsidiaries. The largest B Corp is actually Danone's North American subsidiary. So if you buy, you know, Danone or, or uh, Oikos or other yogurt, you know, they own White Waves or Horizon, uh, Milks, uh, Silk, there's, there'll probably be a B Corp logo uh, on, on the back of that. So these large companies are really jumping on board. And I think that also it's, it's gathered steam outside the United States. So this started by 
entrepreneurs in the U.S. And there's so much interest outside the U.S. that, you know, and it was very much a ground uh, sort of grassroots type of type of movement where entrepreneurs from Latin America or Europe, uh, they actually became enthusiastic about this and brought it to their company. And now actually over 50 percent of the B Corps are outside of, of the U.S. Hmm, that's interesting. Are there any trends there? Like, are they predominantly concentrated in Europe or in Asia? Are there any interesting trends around just geographically where they locate? Sure. So, you know, as you guess, I mean, it is uh, frequently the more developed uh, uh, countries. Uh, so Europe has a big cluster, UK, uh, Latin America, actually the first international um, uh, expansion was to Latin America. Some entrepreneurs there, uh, you know, found this model and, and brought it to Latin America. And, and actually, interestingly enough, uh, two of the countries in the world uh, uh, that have passed benefit corporation law. So it's a sort of a parallel uh, legal innovation uh, where companies um, can, can sort of within the, you know, encode within their sort of operating documents, stakeholder driven language are Colombia and Ecuador. So Latin America is really uh, a leader on this, on this topic. And um, uh, Australia is another big, uh, big hotspot. However, you know, growing demand in, China, for instance, you know, I've studied uh, a number of B corporations in China. Uh, so it's really all over the world. And have you seen uh, much of a collision between, you know, becoming a B Corp and, and traditional asset management? And, and the reason I asked the question is, you know, when Fifth Wall decided to become a B Corp, um, it was obviously very important for us to do. And right. we just assumed that lots of other venture funds um, were, although we, we hadn't really checked yeah. it out. And right. when we became one, we actually learned that Fifth Wall is the second largest venture capital B Corp. Um, have you seen more of that or do you see that accelerating more in the asset management space? I, I think so. I mean, this is something when I first started studying this, there was very little interest from, I think, just investors, broadly speaking. Um, uh, you know, and then, you know, there was an uptake in impact investors uh, so, you know, RSF Capital Management, Bridges, some, some sort of, you know, well-known ones that are B Corps, uh, and really found value and, uh, in the tools that B-Lab had uh, to, you know, then a lot of entrepreneurial companies, uh, like, for instance, Allbirds, which I think you're uh, an investor in, you know, has a, variety, has a number of mainstream uh, uh, venture capital companies. Laureate is an example of, of, a, of the, fir the first public in the U.S. B Corp. Uh, had, you know, KKR, you know, sort of the famous corporate raiders from the, you know, um, from, from, the, from the RGR Nabisco uh, deal. So I think that it has gained traction among these, um, you know, more mainstream investors over time. And I think, you know, as you probably know, you know, Laureate was the first public B Corp. I think it went public in 2017. And just in the last week, uh, a B Corp went public, Vital Farms. And earlier uh, in last month, in July, another B Corp Lemonade, which is a, uh, an online insurance company, also went public. So just in the last month, there's been two B Corps going public. Uh, you know, over time, I think all of the major, you know, sort of VCPE firms uh, from Kleiner Perkins, TPG, uh, have a B Corp in their portfolio. I mean, you guys, before you came a B Corp. Uh, so, I, so I do think this is something where it's, you know, it's, it's like an exponential, I've seen, you know, exponential growth, and I think it'll only uh, increase. Yeah, and I, I think just, you know, being in the real estate sector, where I don't think there are an enormous number of B Corps, when we announced that, that we had become one, we got a lot of feedback, very positive from 
real estate owners and operators and developers that, that, that really cared about that, saw that as important. And, and maybe that's a good transition into, you know, talking about climate change. Yeah. So uh, I'm curious to get your perspective on climate change. Obviously, that's, that's a big part of, you know, sustainability and what becoming a B Corp means. And it seems like this crisis and the ensuing slowdown in the economy has given people a window to experience what that means in terms of reducing our emissions. Um, yeah. And I think the feedback has been very positive from that. But how do we make that stick? How do we make that realization, that recognition that, you know, reducing our admission, emissions is important? Um, how do we make that durable um, on the other side of this crisis? Yeah, so I think um, I totally am with you on, on this. And it's a big challenge and puzzle. And, you know, if you think about like where like sort of the big pollution centers are, I mean, China is a big one. Um, and, you know, I've read, you know, there was a huge, as you probably saw, you know, they had all these, you know, satellite images of like Wuhan city where things broke out or Beijing and just how things had totally cleared out over, you know, the air cleared over a month. Uh, however, you know, China, I'm not that optimistic about along these lines, to be honest. I just read something, a report that came out that actually um, uh, the sort of pollution levels are, are back to being worse than before the pandemic. Uh, and, you know, there's, you know, what this shows basically, which is not surprising or the, you know, is, I mean, there's a direct correlation and trade-off between economic growth and pollution. Uh, and I think in China with, you know, the government now, want, you know, sort of really wanting to, you know, you know, stay in control in a very firm way, I think that's very unlikely that they'll sort of dial back that, uh, that the sort of push for economic growth uh, in the U.S., you know, maybe a little bit more optimistic. Um, pollution issues are not as bad, although certainly could be improved. And I think part of the reason why I'm more optimistic is, you know, what we were discussing earlier. I think there is a, a, an understanding that we're at a tipping point in the, the the world, and the business needs to be more stakeholder focused. I mean, of course. You know, this also relies on political leadership and sort of understanding the science behind that actually climate change is a real serious uh, issue. Uh, but I do think that that, you know, the, the, the folks that are really pushing from the business side around, uh, you know, focusing on stakeholders sort of get that, you know, climate is a really important the environment is really important to be paying attention to. And the government, even though the, I don't think the federal government is as responsive at this point, I do think a lot of, you know, city and state governments are uh, ramping up some of their policies. So I think through sort of all of that action, I, I am hopeful that we can build on this sort of respite of, uh, of pollution that we've had due to, you know, sort of, you know, not, not great circumstances. And it's interesting that you brought up um, regulation because new local regulation, especially around carbon neutrality, has really been kind of the, the driver for the real estate industry's new focus on sustainability. But, you know, one of the things we realized as we were looking at the space is it's actually shocking how contributive the real estate industry is to climate change. And, you know, the, the, the stats are, are remarkable. It's a, Real estate industry is responsible for 40% of all raw materials. 
It's 40% of the world's energy consumption and 30% of greenhouse gases, the real estate industry, which in the U.S. is about 13% of U.S. GDP. And so we were, I found those stats staggering. And the most interesting part of that was why has the real estate industry kind of skirted the spotlight in a way where I think if you ask the average consumer what industries are most responsible or most culpable for climate change, reflexively they would say heavy manufacturing and transportation. Um, But real estate dwarfs them. Um, I'm curious from your perspective, why has the real estate industry been able to skirt the spotlight and and kind of almost um, not take responsibility for its role in climate change? Why do you think that is? Yeah, I think that's a that's a real interesting question. I mean, I think part of it is, you know, it, like you're saying, it's not obvious. I mean, if you look at, you know, I, I grew up in Pittsburgh, and, and when I grew up, uh, it was sort of, you know, all the factories were sort of winding down. But I remember, you know, as I, you know, when I was little, and we would we would drive into the city for, you know, various events, you know, there was a, a variety of steel mills along the, the river. And, I, you know, I guess you could see them belching out smoke and sometimes fire was coming out. And, and I think, so it's real obvious, you know, if you can see sort of a factory, you know, sort of emitting smoke or cars, you know, emitting um, emissions from their tailpipes. I mean, this is something that's very sort of salient and evocative uh, to people. Whereas for real estate, you know, it's, um, you know, it's probably, you know, a lot of it's through, I don't know, maybe not, I, I know, I, I'm not an expert in real estate, but, uh, you know, if the things aren't insulated well, or, you know, one of the things that, you know, I've renovated a few homes, and it's really surprising to me how sort of like bespoke everything is in, in real estate. So, you know, it's not like, you know, even in manufacturing, things can be done the very standardized way. But if you're making a building, you know, it's, unique to that site. And so as a result, there's probably a lot more waste because things are not standardized. Uh, There's many different sort of crafts involved uh, so that people are, you know, doing things, a lot more coordination and difficulty. So, you know, one of the companies in China that I studied that was really interesting is a company called Broad Air, and they actually make prefabricated buildings. They have these videos online, which are just amazing, where they put up a building in, you know, like, you know, 20 story building in like a week. Uh, and, you know, when I met with the CEO there and talked to him, he mentioned this idea of like how so many, I mean, buildings being bespoke really leads to a tremendous amount of waste. And if you could have standardized prefab uh, buildings, that would really, you know, have dramatic effect on the environment. So I think, uh, you know, Got a little far off, a little off, off the off the question, but I do think it's uh, it's a really unique problem because I can understand why people want to have unique and interesting uh, buildings that fit the site really well. But almost by definition, that's going to lead to more waste, uh, both material-wise, but then also generally pollution and environment. Yeah, it's it's interesting, and I'm always curious to get people's perspective on it because it feels from from our vantage point, like there's been this triangulation of forces that have that have kind of put the real estate industry in the center of focus, which is these new regulations, the new carbon neutrality laws, and in, in, in particular in New York and Los Angeles, which are kind of right. forebearers of what I think we're likely to see throughout the U.S., mandating carbon neutrality, mandating the Paris standards. The second is, is actually also really interesting, which is capital markets. So 
you know, large buyers of real estate debt, um, lenders, insurance companies, large uh, buyers of REIT public equities are saying, right. we want to provide advantage access. We want to preferentially deploy capital to lower no impact, uh, carbon impact real estate. And that's obviously impacted cost of capital for real estate companies. And then on the consumer side, on the demand side, you're seeing tenants like we were just talking about, these typically technology right. um, driven tenants that have younger millennial workforces saying, these are our standards. We won't lease space from you. So if you don't conform to this, yeah. there's no demand for space. And it's like the real estate industry has been thrust in the middle of it. And the interesting thing, this, the, the fascinating thing about the real estate industry is it's, it's one of the only industries you can't move. Um, right, so you can't move a building. So every, all the buildings yeah. behind you, if the, those owners don't like the new local regulations, they can't just pick that building up and move right. it to Texas. Um, yeah. it, it actually, they have to conform. And so there's a permanence to real estate that that almost makes it more governable. Um, and the other interesting thing I'm always curious about is how do you audit this? It, it, it seems like yeah. one of the drivers that has pushed the real estate industry into focus is the fact that you can now measure the carbon footprint of a right. building. And I always think about this axiom that um, regulators tend to tax whatever you can measure. And since you can now measure it, right. um, you can tax it. Do you think that's one of the major drivers here? I, I definitely think think so. I mean, I think that uh, in, in, a, in a few ways, and I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that, like you're saying, I mean, I've heard, you know, the capital markets, I mean, obviously, you know, sort of Larry Fink being a famous example of saying really, you know, focusing on sustainability is, is, is about the long term. Uh, and, you know, part of it is that it's going to be regulations. Uh, I think also, in addition to your sort of consumer or demand side uh, point, I mean, I've talked to so many companies that want themselves to go carbon neutral and frequently they don't own the buildings that they're in. And so that creates, I think, sort of a, you know, upstream pressure on, on their, um, their landlord. Um, and I think more generally, you know, this idea of measuring is, uh, yeah, tremendously important. And I think that, uh, you know, maybe, you know, government might measure something and then want to tax it. But I think that businesses, when they want to, when they measure something, uh, they want to make it more efficient uh, and and more and sort of you know squeeze out the unnecessary cost. You know whether it's it's through an ideology of wanting to do better for the environment, or you know if you read Larry Fink's latest letter, you know he talks about half of it. I mean, doesn't it's the half that doesn't get as much uh, attention as the first half on purpose. But he talks about sustainability standards, and he says that companies should be using these like they use financial uh, metrics. Uh, and the idea that, you know, you sort of track, measure, report, uh, and it creates a discipline within the organization that you actually, you know, become better on those dimensions. But then also, you know, if you're transparent, then external actors uh, can also assess you. So I do think that, I do think there's a lot of power. It's not very sexy. I mean, if you think, you know, like, you know, sort of SpaceX or Tesla is sort of a sexy innovation, but I think that the innovations that have been made in this measurement space are hugely uh, important for impacting our environment. And, and with all that said, you know, there's obviously a lot of uh, individuals in the real estate industry that, that listen to this. Um, what can the real estate industry learn from other industries, from other paradigms that, that, that other templates of how to approach this that you think would just be useful for owners to consider? 
Um, and, and the reason I think of that is that um, what has surprised me as, as I've dug into the space is how little the real estate industry itself invests in the technology to achieve carbon neutrality. Meaning there's, if you go on any real estate company's website, you see lots of, you know, splashy grandstanding statements about which kind of looks like glorified greenwashing, right? Because right. you don't see dollar signs. And I think about the contrast of that to what Microsoft or what Amazon have done in saying, we're going to commit a billion dollars, $2 billion into the, the technology that is actually going to enable us to achieve carbon neutrality. And there, there's, a, yeah. there's a disjuncture there that, that's kind of obvious for such a large industry like real estate. What can be learned, I guess, as as a real estate owner in terms of how to embrace that responsibility? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't want to be repetitive, but I do think that there is something to be said for, uh, you know, this idea of, you know, measuring, tracking uh, in reporting. And I think that that's in some ways almost like a first step or even a baseline. I think too, uh, you know, setting goals. Uh, again, sort of sounds sort of simple, but I think that many of the organizations like you described, you know, that's, you know, that's what they're doing. They're putting dollars against it as well, but they're saying, okay, you know, we're going to be, you know, carbon neutral by 2030. Uh, and, you know, that kicks off a whole set of work and processes within those firms for people to creatively think about how to actually do it. I mean, this is something that um, I've seen again and again in the companies that I've studied is that, you know, the people that have like all the ideas of how to actually innovate and change or, or not all of them, but most of them are actually on the front lines. They're, they're, they're actually the day-to-day, -day, you know, could be building managers or, um, uh, or whomever. And, and, and they, you know, if there is actually a goal and potentially not even a big incentive, an incentive to actually get them thinking about how, how actually through the, either the work that they do themselves or the environment they're in, how it could be changed, I mean, that really opens up a tremendous amount of innovation. And it's really, that, that's the kind of innovation that's necessary to get like the last few miles on this. I mean, there could be big things like, you know, I don't know, solar panels or, or you know, retrofitting insulation or, you know, I've read a, a lot of really interesting things about what they've done to the Empire State Building uh, recently. But, uh, but I think that really to unleash, you know, innovation on it, I think you have to engage the more of the frontline people. I think that's totally right. And I think engaging those kind of frontline managers that really see waste in their organization, in this case, energy right. waste or efficiency waste, um, is like that, that, that first step. Um, but it's interesting when you, when you mentioned goals, because I, 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 I've thought a lot about this with respect to the real estate industry. You do see these goals out there. I mean, we've seen many real estate companies come out and say, we have a goal of being carbon neutral by X date. Um, yeah. And what's interesting about that is that is a scientific problem, right? Like meaning science is right. what will get you to that outcome. Today, the science doesn't really exist to cost effectively bring real estate owners, any real estate owners, anyone that owns one of the buildings right. behind you, to carbon neutrality. And so we have to be betting on science to move us there. Um, and, and I kind of likened the analogy to, you know, when, when Kennedy said, we're going to put a man on the moon before the end of the decade, right? It was this kind of bold, ambitious statement. And the daylight between where we are now and putting a man on the moon was science. 
investing in rockets and investing in NASA and, and real money deployed. And it feels yeah. like there's this disjuncture in the real estate space where these goals have been set and they're ambitious. And I think they're, they're bold and they should be celebrated. But what you don't see is the commensurate amount of technology investment happening. Uh-huh. Um, there, there's, a, there's a gap. It's like in that analogy of um, putting a man on the moon, it's like if yeah. when Kennedy did that or when he said that, instead of investing in NASA, instead of investing in rocket science, he invested in a lot of PR for NASA. And they were worrying about how are we going to have the closed circuit televisions to broadcast the man landing on the moon? It's like, those are later stage problems. Let's first solve the right. science. Yeah, yeah, totally. yeah. And yeah, yeah. I've noticed this weird distinction um, in the real estate industry where you see lots of like heads of sustainability that, and it feels very PR-like. How do you think we as a as consumers can get yeah. owners of any business to recognize that investment in science is in part the way through. How do you create that, I don't know, that yeah. conclusion, that, 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 that drive for them? I mean, I think it's, you know, um, I think that all the consumers can do is point the company in the right direction uh, through, I, I think it's hard, it's harder for them to think like the second order, like how to get there and, and right. through technology. Uh, so, you know, I think that's the, the onus of that is on the companies really to say, okay, our consumers want us to be carbon neutral. And we, you know, obviously science and technology is a key, is a key way. I think it's hard to use consumers as a lever. And I don't know, uh, like invest, investors, I think could be more, powerful uh, on that. Uh, you know, I think that I think that also potentially, you know, companies can work together. I mean, this is something that, uh, you know, I, you know, may, real estate companies can come together in a consortium or, you know, to fund various investment. It seems like this is something where, you know, there's a real, like collective action problem in some or not, not problem, but opportunity where, you know, actually by, you know, sharing technology, and I'm sure some of this exists, uh, you know, sharing, you know, technology, joint funding of initiatives, uh, you know, I think some of the work that you're doing sort of pools, uh, sort of resources from a variety of sort of real estate focused LPs and, 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 you know, puts that into some interesting technology. So, so I think that's, you know, a way is, you know, because not every company should really have to reinvent every technology. I mean, if you could get to some standards that are, you know, funded by a variety of leading industry participants, that's a much faster way to, and more efficient way to do it. It's interesting the way you put that as a collective action problem, because it, that, that it is exactly that. It's precisely that. It's a situation where the industry all has the same challenge. Um, and to some extent, the way through is the same for the whole industry, which is, you know, investment right. in climate science and climate tech. Um, and yeah, yeah, we, we, we haven't figured out the right way to, to reinforce that message candidly. Um, you know, yeah. we were even thinking like whenever um, you look at a particular company's um, sustainability page, you start asking questions, which is like, just where are the dollar signs? Um, where's yeah. the dollars? Like, I see lots of talk. I see lots of tree planting. <laughs> but, and, that, and that's fantastic. And I don't want to diminish that. Right. But meaning alongside that and synchronous with it should be an investment in technology. And, and we, we haven't seen that. Um, 
I guess the, the, the last question I, I have just to, to kind of um, draw on just your experience is, where do you think the B Corp movement goes? Like, what does the future hold? Like, do you see a world where a significant portion of the companies on the Fortune 500 are B Corps or, or have some kind of socially conscious or environmentally conscious mandates that they self-adhere to? Like, what is that future for you? Yeah, so I do think, you know, maybe not every company will be a B Corp, but I think they'll be a lot more like B Corps. And I think that people will understand and companies will understand that they are sort of beholden to and responsive to diverse stakeholders beyond shareholders. And I think this is something where, you know, the B Corp movement provides a lot of tools for companies to help them, you know, sort of walk along that path to being more stakeholder driven. I do think, you know, 30 years from now, hopefully less, 20 years from now, people will look back and say, you know, companies that were just focused on shareholders, that's, that's crazy. Uh, or, you know, the companies that are much more focused on, you know, variety of stakeholders is actually, you know, the proven long-term sustainable, resilient way to do business. And, you know, many of, I think the leading lights will be, um, you know, B corporations. Uh, so, you know, in addition to Danone, I think there's some other larger companies that are seriously thinking about sort of starting along the path. You know, many large companies have B Corps as subsidiaries, uh, you know, sort of from, you know, Pepsi to Gap to Procter and Gamble to Campbell Soup to Anheuser-Busch. Uh, so I think that it's, you know, a lot of companies are, uh, are getting in on this. And I think that, you know, the broader move towards stakeholder capitalism uh, is, is only going to increase. Well, obviously, we we totally agree and and support all the all the work and all the research that that you're doing. Um, and it's just it's it's actually inspiring to to think that that will be the future. Uh, we hope it is. Um, and so, anything we can do to help support the the B Corp movement and the work that you're doing, we want to continue to do. So, super, and, cer- and certainly having fifth wall be a B Corp and support B Corps is is huge. Uh, And it's a really, I think, an indicator in uh, an indicator of how pervasive this move, this movement is becoming. Yeah, yeah, we hope so. I hope I hope it only increases. Um, Well, Chris, thank you so much for your time. Um, And I look forward to really my pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fly on the Wall. All of these episodes and more are available on our YouTube channel. To learn more about Fifth Wall, visit our website at www.fifthwall.com.